CloudPod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 56, recorded on January 22nd, 2020. The CloudPod, a masterclass in cloud architecture. Good evening. Hey, Justin. Hey. How is it? Uh, how's it going? Is it uh, a lovely Wednesday for both of you? I'm not going to say it's a lovely Wednesday. I feel like I've aged about 10 years this week so far. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunate. How about you, Peter? How's your week going? Uh, spectacular. Uh, I have not yet finished, uh, even considered starting packing for my trip tomorrow. So, Oh, my, uh, my wife is also leaving our trip tomorrow. Uh, not with you, Peter, but uh, she, <laughs> so, uh, but she's frantically packing as I record the podcast. Uh, she is behind schedule and she is feeling stress as she's leaving tomorrow at like eleven thirty. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how that we'll see how that goes. Uh, it's gonna yeah. be a long night, is my expectation. Well, good. Uh, we we have some follow up. Uh, so from episode fifty four in the Justin does the thing segment, um, I think I said something to the extent of uh, reading through the Oracle press announcement that I didn't really see where they mentioned uh, that they had EBS volume block copy before. That's kind of what led me down the path to the Oracle thing. And uh, so Max Varun, uh, product manager at Oracle, uh, he sent us an email saying, hey, uh, we did actually mention it in the article <laughs> that you linked to uh, in the second paragraph. And uh, it says in the second paragraph, as so I went back and verified, uh, this new capability follows our prior announcement of cross-region block volume backups. Together, they provide a complete solution for comprehensive application and data protection in the cloud, including the easy recovery of compute instances across regions. So uh, yes, technically it was there. Uh, but if you ever have to go through several hundred press releases a week, um, you skim through the, the open boilerplate because it's just boilerplate and I just missed it. So, But it was still a fun adventure. And so I, I don't regret it at all. <laughs> That's right. And that, that announcement, the original announcement came right before we started recording the podcast. It was end of November 2018. So uh, I think we can forgive you for missing that one. Yeah, that's right. But it's still a fun time. And uh, he actually wants to uh, talk to us and you know get some more of our feedback as well as maybe do an interview show with us. So we'll, we'll see if we can get Max yeah, uh, on the show and uh, talk about it. So I got to say, I got to see the email too. And he was very polite. He was very polite. Yes, he was super nice. And you know, and I, I was listening back to it uh, earlier in the week or, or late last week. And I, I thought we were pretty nice. I mean, I wasn't mean. I mean, I, mean, I legitimately said, you know, this is a you know, very infrastructurally focused um, solution, but it works and the iSCSI is great. And, you know, you know, if you want those things, and that might come, I think the only negative thing I said is I didn't think it was very developer focused. Uh, it was more system engineer, more infrastructure focused, but I think that's, I don't know if that's really a complaint <laughs> as much as it's a, it's just a fact. <laughs> so uh, I think it's just the way it is. And there's people you build clouds for and those are not those people. And don't forget, Oracle support did get back to you uh, almost two weeks after you had the, had the payment issue. We recorded that episode uh, on uh, January 8th, and I think I tried to get onto the Oracle Cloud on the 6th. And so remember, I mentioned to you that the credit card process failed and it was some issue with their backend system, but they had a chat with an agent and then it emailed, uh, had an option to email. Uh, and so on Monday, on the 20th, uh, exactly two weeks later, uh, they basically said, uh, you should clear your cookies and try again uh, <laughs> in an email response back to me, which I was uh, not super appreciative of because <laughs> it's, it's, it's been two weeks. And so I, you know, if I had not gone to Twitter and I had not complained and used my, my Twitter credibility to get uh, that fixed quickly, we would still be waiting for uh, Justin Does a Thing. Uh, until this week, <laughs> so there you well, go. Hey, at least they got back to you. I mean, if it was AWS, if you don't spend t you know ten k a month, they won't even speak to you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. 
Let's go talk about Microsoft. Uh, so Microsoft is planning to go carbon negative. Uh, and this raises the bars for their tech rivals. Uh, this is a 30-year plan for Microsoft to remove the from the atmosphere all the carbon has ever emitted from the founding of the company, effecti effectively eliminating its global carbon footprint. Um, other companies have uh, set goals, but nowhere near as ambitious as Microsoft's. And by 2025, they will shift to renewable energy to uh, power its facilities around the world. And after that, in 2040, they'll start going towards um, carbon ne negative by planting trees and forests and doing all kinds of things to actually give back uh, carbon to the world that they stole. So there you go. Uh, it's an interesting investment. Uh, Alphabet, you know, as previously reported, they reached carbon neutral in 2007. Uh, they have not committed to going to carbon negative, and Amazon, uh, you know, committed some goals that we've talked about on the show in the past, uh, with a desire to be carbon net zero by 2040 and 100% renewable by 2030. Uh, but there's been reports, as we've talked about on the show before, that they are way behind their goals uh, to deliver that as well. Uh, so Microsoft making a big bet, see if they can deliver on this promise, which may be a bit ambitious. So they're going to continue to grow the Azure cloud at the, at the level they think they're going to. Yeah, I'm not sure this is a fair comparison, really, saying, hey, look look what we're doing, and you're not doing it yet. When they've, they've got... 145, 150,000 employees, and, a, and obviously a much smaller uh, data center presence than Amazon has right now. Not to mention that Amazon is not just AWS; it's the entire Amazon business, including um, you know all the all the trucks that they deliver with and all the warehouses that they support. And they've got 750,000 employees, so I think it's not quite a fair comparison. Nobody said life is fair. <laughs> it's all about it's all about those marketing eyeballs and if you can throw your competitors under the bus and say we're gonna do something more amazing and then hope that everyone forgets about it by 2025 and 2030 and 2045 and all these years many many years in the future when we all will be drowning in global warming uh you know we'll deal with it then <laughs> so it, it's really cool it's it's um, I, I joke about that stuff but it's it's really good to see that such a uh, a profit focused company is is spending so much effort on doing the right thing Definitely good to see these things, uh, you know, with big investment companies also going down this path of, you know, saying they're going to start investing more in carbon negative and carbon neutral solutions. Um, it's definitely a changing world in this area. You can uh, wave goodbye to some people at DigitalOcean. Uh, they've apparently laid off about 10% of their workforce. Uh, it was undisclosed, but it was estimated 10%. Uh, and they, it's interesting because on Hacker News, uh, one of their co-founders actually had a few things to say about uh, the recent layoffs. Uh, so first of all, from the Register article, uh, apparently the DigitalOcean was making 200, has $275 million in uh, annual recurring revenue. And about 500,000 customers globally. Now, I don't know how they define a customer because I might be a customer with my one server um, versus another customer that has thousands of servers. I don't know how they treat those. Uh, but they do say the new org structure with the 10% with the reduction is positioned to accelerate their profitable growth by continuing to serve the developers and entrepreneurs around the world. And like I mentioned on Hacker News, uh, digital co-founder Moisey Uretsky uh, provided a little bit more detail uh, and then admitted that he did not have authorization to say those things, but he felt they were still fair and left them on Hacker News. So he says, uh, as unfortunate as layoffs are, they were really due to the two CEO changes in the past 18 months and leadership changes that created some competing directions in the business, which Yancey Spruill, our new CEO, is now addressing. We're not running out of money, nor do we have an immediate need to raise capital, and the layoffs aren't related to any of any sort of cost-cutting initiative. So, interesting uh, to see what kind of happens and if this is truly not a cost-cutting move and truly designed to streamline their business and focus on profitability, or is this a first step in getting acquired by a bigger player? I think that is still to be determined. But uh, definitely good to see uh, you know Moise Uretsky out there kind of defending the company he founded. I think that's a great 
it's it's a shame they couldn't keep the people on and just get them all working on something that, that was more profitable or uh, heading in the right direction than letting good people go. By definition, layoffs are cost-cutting, regardless of whether or not you're running out of money or raising capital. If you're laying them off, not with the goal of reallocating that money somewhere else, then uh, it's cost-cutting. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense if they're spending too much today. Yeah, and I, I assume that they're big enough to be um, subject to restrictions on on rehiring after a layoff too. So it's going to stunt their growth for a couple of years. That's that's yeah. concerning. Maybe uh, maybe your vision of aggregation of the the smaller providers will will actually happen this year. There's some other speculation here in the um, you know in the article from the register that I didn't have right in the show notes, but uh, they do mention. Uh, cloud providers like DigitalOcean, Linode, and Vulture have been under pressure from the industry's dominant player Amazon since they launched uh, the low-cost offering called LightSail back in 2016, which I've never met anybody who actually uses LightSail, so <laughs> I'm glad there's apparently there's competitive pressure from that, uh, but uh, it's a little interesting as well. And then you also do mention that they are running at a modest loss right now, which is okay because they're growing, and also because whenever you launch a new product or feature, the upfront costs are as much higher to get the initial pub product built, and there is no revenue contribution for until it's launched and ramped up. Uh, that again was from their founder, um, so they haven't raised money since 2017, and he says that they have no plans uh, to do that at this point uh, to raise another round anytime soon. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I do still expect consolidation in that space uh, to finally fulfill my 2019 prediction. <laughs> so <laughs> well, someday, someday it'll happen. All right, moving on to our good friends uh, up in Seattle at Amazon Web Services. Uh, they this last week was sales kickoff for them, so most of them are out, uh, but they did not slow down the announcements. <laughs> they kept us going with uh, lots of great new features. The first one is the ability for the AWS Health uh, capability to enable aggregation of health events across all of your AWS organization uh, connected accounts. The central aggregation of these AWS health events uh, allows you to see uh, real-time access to all of the health events, uh, including individual accounts in your organization, operational issues, scheduled maintenance, and account notifications. And these OrgView unlocks new capabilities not previously available to you as a customer, including central ops team's ability to view and respond to events affecting accounts across the entire organization. So a great to continue to see uh, lots of Amazon organizations' features being developed. Um, after this got announced, I did a uh, uh, tweet at uh, AWS, and I said, uh, you know, I really like that you have these public roadmaps, but will you please put Amazon organizations on a public roadmap so I can stop uh, coming up with solutions that I want uh, to build that you're already building? Yeah, <laughs> so, really? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't it have been good to have this right before the RDS uh, certificate mess? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. it's been really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is good then because thinking about uh, hardware degradation and machines that need to be rebooted and stuff like that, it's very difficult to keep track of that over a couple of hundred accounts or more. And so, putting it into a central place is is really cool. That's yeah. I'm glad organizations. And your only way to do this before was to kind of build your own custom tooling and you know call the APIs across all your accounts, the trusted advisor, and then you know, integrate with your ticketing system. So this is all very very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Amazon uh, ECS has announced the preview support for the EFS file system. Uh, this will allow you to basically have stateful data be stored on EFS and connected to by Amazon ECS. Uh, this is configured in the ECS task definitions and is compatible with the EC2 launch type. Uh, customers can add the file system to the task definition and mount it as part of the launch process. Uh, EFS preview support um, can be set up through the task definition with the volume ID uh, using the EFS file system ID. And I assume that this is probably the first step towards Fargate being able to support EFS sometime later in the year, which has been a much uh, requested feature. So good to see this step in ECS, which means that it might not be far behind for Fargate. The announcement on uh, the IM controls for EFS makes all the more sense now. 
It does make a lot more sense. <laughs> I still think S3 would be a better solution than EFS, certainly a lot cheaper and probably as performant. But um, I guess this uh, this is a bit of an enabler for people moving legacy applications that still need uh, to look at what looks like a file system to them. As someone was mentioning, I think it was Ben Kehoe actually on Twitter was saying, you know, he'd love to see EFS kind of become a caching layer to S3, uh, oh. which would be kind of an interesting idea um, that could be really powerful for a lot of companies who or want to make the pivot to the lower cost S3 capabilities, but without the overhead of rewriting to object storage directly. Maybe it already is that. I, I think it probably is at some <laughs> level, but you don't, you don't get that pricing opportunity because EFS is super duper expensive. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think it's EBS packed. We'll have to do some digging. How yeah, can, how, can, how can we find out? <laughs> well, it, yeah. I'm how sure can we, we can, I'm sure we can find a product manager somewhere who might tell yeah. you. Yeah. Just, just a matter of hitting the right people up on Twitter. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Amazon EKS has announced a price reduction. This is a 50% reduction of the per hour cost for the EKS cluster. This is for the, of course, the managed master nodes. Uh, this new price is available for all new and existing Amazon EKS clusters. Uh, this uh, price reduction now brings them to exactly where they were before, which is still 100% more expensive than AKS and GKE for the same capability. Uh, but they did want to point out that uh, the EKS feature has released 62 new features and launched in 14 regions and four and supported four different versions of Kubernetes uh, in the last 18 months, uh, which apparently is supposed to make you feel good about paying this uh, monthly fee. And they did highlight three customers uh, using mission-critical production workloads on EKS, including uh, Snap, HSBC, and Advalo. And uh, Edward DeVouge, uh, lead SRE at Advalo, says, We are running our application on Amazon EKS, launching up to 2,000 nodes per day and running up to 75,000 pods for microservices and machine learning apps, allowing us to detect purchase intent through individualized marketing in the website and shops of our customers. Uh, that is a lot of pods. That's a lot of pods. Yeah. I would not want to do... Uh, I imagine as SRE, he is a very busy man. Derek in the, our Slack room did point out, though, that GKE doesn't auto-scale or right-size the uh, the cluster, whereas um, EKS does. It will scale down the cluster or scale it up as necessary for the workload. There's a GKE premium offering that I think does do that, but again, it's, it's additional pricing uh, for this capability. So, I mean, if you really get these comparing comparisons down to you know GK Premium versus Amazon EKS, I think they are probably in close parity at this point with the new price reduction. Um, I still would have loved to see this as free, but I do think uh, they kind of see that that's what ECS is and Fargate. Uh, you get all those benefits of, of containers without the overhead of Kubernetes. And so if you want it for free, go use the native tool. If you want Kubernetes to be uh, cloud agnostic, you're going to pay a little bit of a tax. That said, I've heard zero customers complain to me about EKS pricing. Having managed Kubernetes masters, I would pay it every day of the week. I was happy paying it the whole price. Uh, but I mean, if I was multi-cloud and I was looking at Google and I was looking at Azure and I'm in a competitive situation against Amazon, um, that is a cost that gets factored into the cost, the ROI story for these systems. Absolutely. 
Amazon also decided to announce an additional price uh, cut this week. So Cloud Endure, uh, which we talked about on episode 5, going way, way, way back, uh, when it was acquired by AWS. Uh, and again, in episode 28, when they discussed that the Cloud Endure migration feature was going to be free and available to uh, professional services customers and migration partners to help you move to the cloud. Apparently, this feature uh, is a DR, automated DR capability that allows you to replicate uh, data from on-premise, virtual, or cloud-based systems to a low-cost staging area in AWS region of your choice. And then you can use that data to then uh, instantiate automatically your production environment. Uh, so apparently, that now has an 80% price reduction. Uh, the latest cost reduction now reduces this to about uh, 0.028 cents per hour, or about $20 a month per server uh, for the staging capability. Ability. I assume you're also still paying for uh, EVS uh, or S3 storage. Uh, but again, compared to traditional DR, the amount of this cost is pennies. And so this is a nice option for a lot of companies who have to have a DR solution, but don't necessarily need to have an active-active type standby solution. Yep, on its way to free. On its way. Yeah, I, I think it's odd that they didn't build this replication into the EVS layer rather than having it like an agent-based thing. But maybe, maybe it just works better when you've got an agent in the OS doing the work for you. I imagine it's it's better. Uh, and plus, this is a third party they bought. At some level, you had to make a decision, do you want to re-engineer this product to really, truly tie into the Amazon ecosystem, or is this a, a short-term solution for a specific use case that you know people are willing to pay a premium price for? Uh, and you can deal with some of the trade-offs. I think that's what they made the call for. Well, I guess now they own it. They have zero incentive to do it at the EBS layer because they've already got a solution that works, and why, why mm-hmm. reinvent the wheel? That's mm. true. We talked about um, at reInvent that uh, Amazon had released their new local uh, local zone in uh, Los Angeles, and we, we commented then that it was a little weird because they have a local region, and what's the difference between a local region and a local zone? Uh, but uh, Amazon has uh, decided to, announce, to, to address that issue by announcing that uh, Amazon Osaka local region will now be expanded to become a full region. Uh, so, of course, when you can't solve this problem with marketing, you just buy your way out of the problem by building two more availability zones. Uh, <laughs> and so they will now have three availability zones in early 2021. Uh, and this will be the second full region in Japan after the Tokyo region. The Asako local region was launched in February 28, and uh, that is about 400 kilometers or 250 miles apart uh, with these two data centers. So uh, by 2021, you will have two additional availability zones, bringing your total up to three for the local region in Osaka. There you go. There is no more local region. It's only local zone. Yeah, now you can do full DR inside of Japan. Which is nice. Um, unless uh, uh, you know, a tidal wave takes out the whole island, then you don't really have a lot of options. But you have other problems <laughs> than at that point, too. <laughs> but Godzilla takes you out. I don't, there's nothing really you can do at that point. Yeah. I thought as long as they're 50 miles apart, it doesn't matter. Right, they're 250 miles. Godzilla can, can strut across Japan in minutes. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. Guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Amazon Key Management Services is expanding support for asymmetric keys. Uh, this allows you to uh, create asymmetric customer master keys, or CMKs, and generate data key pairs in all regions where KMS is available, of course, except China. Uh, and this feature enables Amazon customers and third parties to perform unauthenticated encryption outside of Amazon uh, on-premise or in an application or something, and then provide that data to you in the cloud, and you can then use uh, your private keys with authentication to decrypt that data in the cloud. Uh, similarly, customers can use ECC or RSA private keys to generate digital signatures, and third parties can perform verification outside of Amazon KMS using those public keys. Um, so this is a great way to kind of get some portability of, si- of signing as well as uh, encryption outside of the Amazon world that you can then decrypt inside AWS. So be great. We got PGP for uh, for KMS like yeah. th- thirty years <laughs> after it was released. That's awesome. No, no, but, but seriously, um, 
this is this is good because this this relieves like a huge constraint on KMS, which was in a number of concurrent operations. If you no longer need to keep half of the key, you know, the public key in KMS or an encryption key in KMS, and you can you can just literally put it on your website or have it floating around in public, then uh, you could scale encryption. Uh, infinitely, whereas as before you were somewhat limited by uh, by the KMS um, hard limits. Yeah, and also it's free. <laughs> it is. It is free. Yeah. I mean, other than your your key that you're storing KMS, you have to pay for. Yeah. Other than that. Yeah. Almost free. Almost. Yeah. So again, uh, Azure is still being a little bit quiet. Um, we did just check before the recording, and they have not released a new feature since uh, December nineteenth. <laughs> uh, so again, they're they're still a little busy. But uh, in conjunction with the announcement that uh, Microsoft is going uh, cloud, you know, basically carbon uh, negative, they have also released the Microsoft Sustainability Calculator to help enterprises analyze the carbon emissions of their IT infrastructure. Uh, and when you really dig into this, it's a, a Power BI application that you can install that allows you to pull in your Azure data to let you know what the sustainability um, situation is of your Azure cloud. As well as you can use it to, you can send a little bit to start pulling in data from your on-premise data centers um, and determine what your cl- your eco footprint is in the world. Um, this, of course, uh, is all in an effort to get you to move more of your workload to Azure, so you don't have to worry about making yourself carbon neutral. Uh, and this report will help you uh, make make those determinations about what you want to do for carbon-based offsets. I wonder if Azure is going to announce uh, some lower uh, lower power processes. Well, of course, we're talking about running Windows and SQL Server, so probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as I was just talking about moving an instance from M5 24x large to R5 24x large because of the memory hungriness of SQL Server. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know that low power is going to help them. <laughs> probably not, no. Yeah. Probably, probably not. Well, hopefully the uh, Azure marketing people um, start announcing something soon. Uh, they've, I have, I mean, in fairness to them, they've released a ton of uh, case studies and things that we don't typically cover here on the show. Unless they're super excitingly interesting, uh, which none of them were. Uh, but you know, hopefully they'll start releasing some stuff soon here. I know they have some Ignite conferences coming up, some local Ignite conferences. Uh, so hopefully we'll start seeing a couple of things maybe come out of those here in the next few weeks. Because uh, uh, it seems like they've been awfully quiet, or uh, maybe they're up to something else that's more important. They're totally busy working on their ultra-premium advanced storage systems. Uh, I mean, I, I think you commented earlier that they're... Uh, they're working. They're they're trying to uh, uncrap themselves from Jedi. <laughs> yeah. uh, so maybe that's what they're doing. Is they're they're a little busy trying to get the Jedi contract figured out. But uh, there we go. All right. Google has announced the launch of their premium support offering for your enterprise and mission critical needs. Uh, this launch of the premium support will include a robust set of services and systems to serve enterprise and mission critical needs of the Google Cloud customers. Uh, if you elect to get the premium support, uh, you will have several benefits, including your cases will be handled directly by a context-aware expert who understands your unique application stack, architecture, and implementation details. Uh, the team will work hand-in-hand with your TAM to deliver customer-centric support experience with faster case resolution, more personalized service, and higher customer satisfaction. And premium support uh, also brings system between GCP and G Suite, including a more competitive set of new features and services including simplified pricing. Uh, in addition, if you'd like to pay additional money to your premium support, so premium support plus plus, uh, there are add-on packages that you can add to this, uh, and those include the ability of the advanced event management service for deeper architecture review and increased readiness for peak events, uh, expanded TAM coverage to address multiple time zones, and the mission-critical support, which is in pilot with customers and available later this year. This service will help you uh, help customers evaluate their DevOps, SRE practices, and suggest recommendations that will improve supportability and reduce downtime for mission-critical workloads. Uh, so that is the offering. What do you guys think? The context-aware experts who understand my unique application stack sounds uh, sounds wonderful. 
Uh, it sounds great. I don't know how you actually do that, but yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I appreciate I, the effort. I mean, I understand your stack and knowing your stack in advance when you need them to, I suppose, is, is two different things. So I, I guess they're going to have a, a bunch of smart people manning the, uh, the service desk. I mean, they just overstaff in the beginning when they have very few customers signing up for it uh, and then um, figure out how to scale it later, I'm sure, is their plan. Although I'm surprised that they're coming out of the gate at a higher price than Amazon, which is uh, seems like when you're not in first place and you have the Me Too feature, it's time to... Uh, immediately at least match pricing well and even even some of the things that they're like in the add-on like the advanced event management service amazon provides that as part of their premium support today too mm-hmm. um that's already included it's part of your fee uh the other two the expanded tam coverage that's actually really cool because that is what challenge if you're a global international company your tam doesn't work 24 <laughs> 7 and so if you have an offshore team in india that needs to talk to the tam um, they're not available. Um, so it's nice to have at least have the option. I wish Amazon would give you that option as well. And then the uh, the mission critical support is really just a way for them to kind of take the um, SRE DevOps practices they have and really make that a consulting service that you kind of get all the time and available to. So that's kind of a nice add-on. I see why those are additional pl- prices. But yeah, when you think about you're actually getting a little bit less potentially in capabilities, but you're also getting a little bit more specialty in your infrastructure. Um, it is a little weird that it costs 150K your base plus a 4% of your net spend. Um, now the the first part of it is in line with Amazon. So if you're if you if you're spending less than uh, you know a certain number amount of money in a in a month, uh, you'll basically pay fifteen thousand dollars a month. So it's a minimum of one hundred fifty dollars, one hundred fifty thousand a year. So those equal, uh, but that's for the up to one hundred fifty thousand a year. Then you have, uh, but Google's already charging you four percent more on top of that for even the first tier, and then from there it goes up uh, significantly. So I, I modeled this out in a couple different ways. Um, so I was just like, well, okay, what if I'm spending a hundred thousand dollars a month? Um, that's basically you know sixteen thousand five hundred dollars per month on GCP. It's fifteen k on AWS because yeah, you're not crossing that minimum threshold. You jump to a million dollars, and I thought you know as you guys got larger, that you know the discounting tiers have come to play, and maybe it would make more sense in a larger account. And they're really trying to price this more towards large accounts. But even a million dollars a month in spend, you're at fifty two thousand five hundred dollars on Google. Uh, versus $30,000 on AWS, uh, which is really kind of shocking to me that that price didn't scale the way I expected it to. Hmm, that's interesting. So if you get an enterprise discount, um, do, you, do you pay support on the list price or do you pay support on the discounted price? For AWS, you pay the discounted price. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they, they give you a, you know whatever your discount is on your EDP. Yeah, I guess, I guess when you're spending 2 or $3 million a month, it's, uh, the difference is negligible to them. Yeah, it really kills my argument though, because I've been I've been kind of having this fight with Amazon that um, I'm not getting you know the value out of my TAM that I really want at the price point that we're paying for them. Uh, <laughs> you know, because once you cross that fifteen thousand a month, which is the basement on pay, which pays for a TAM, that TAM is shared across you know six to eight accounts. I think I don't, I don't remember exact number of accounts, but yeah, you know, I'm saying you know once you go over you know you're spending almost eight hundred nine hundred million dollars a month. I'm spending. Spending way more than 150,000, I should have two TAMs, and I'm trying to make that argument. And now, now Amazon's gonna be like, "Well, you know, look at GCP; it's it's more expensive for less." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're getting a seal of a deal, Justin. That's how. That's my. That's my fear. <laughs> but hopefully, they're not just, listening to the podcast or or paying attention to uh, GCP costs. They're way, they're way too busy with the other seven customers they've got to listen to the podcast. <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed. Google's been doing a pretty good job picking up customers, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they also apparently have. Uh, 
not won over the hearts and minds of Epic Systems. Uh, and you probably are familiar with the name of it if you've ever looked at the computer at your doctor's office. It's typically an Epic Systems uh, patient record system. Uh, apparently, uh, according to this article from CNBC, uh, account representatives from Epic Systems have been calling their customers who are using Google and letting them know they will uh, not be pursuing further integrations with the Google Cloud. Uh, Epic will instead focus on AWS and Azure. Uh, they decided to halt development with Google Cloud because it wasn't seeing sufficient interest among its health system customers to warrant the investment. Uh, of course, this comes as a big blow as uh, Google's efforts to find new customer segments for its cloud product uh, as a company lags behind AWS and Azure. The uh, company had recently signed a big agreement with the Mayo Clinic, uh, which I thought would have maybe helped this out, but apparently not enough to uh, prevent Epic from saying there's just not enough business to make that spend work. I find it a bit weird that, that they really care what cloud their customers are working in. I mean, you'd think that integrations that they built into their own product would be would have their own APIs and be sort of cloud agnostic. So it's, I find it a little strange. I mean, it makes sense with Azure going going kind of all in on the um, on the patient records systems uh, last year, and Google not doing that quite so much. But uh, it's bizarre that they're telling their customers basically to not not use GCP if they want support from Epic. Well, they're basically saying, you know, basically Epic is saying we're not going to integrate with GCP. So you you can still go use GCP all you want to for medical imaging and AI and machine learning and all that. Just you're going to have to build your own bridge between the Epic system and Google. We're not going to do it for you is kind of how I read this. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, I, don't, I never deployed or supported Epic. So maybe, I don't know if Epic's completely SaaS these days or if it's an on-premise um, type setup where you, know, you run it in your hospital infrastructure, either in the cloud or on-prem. Um, I don't really know how Epic works from that perspective. So maybe it's a combination of all the things. <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, there are a couple of interesting quotes here. Epic's uh, vice president of research and development, Seth Haynes, said in a statement, we invest substantial time and engineering effort in evaluating and understanding the infrastructure Epic runs on. Scalability, reliability, and security are important factors we consider when evaluating these underlying technologies. Uh, he said Epic focuses on supporting infrastructure the Epic community uses today and is likely to use in the future. Um, it was also noted in the article that the Wall Street Journal had reported that Cerner uh, had been pursued by Google, but ultimately turned down over tens of millions of dollars in incentives and went with Amazon instead. Uh, and there's an article here from Anish Chopra, president of health technology company Care Journey. He says, uh, we've historically seen hospital systems make these decisions independently of their medical record provider. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Epic's thumb on the scale moves cloud market share in the healthcare space. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. So it does sound like maybe Epic runs on your own infrastructure on the cloud or on-prem um, as an option, and that's kind of what their Seth Haynes is kind of alluding to in his quote. I mean, on one side, I'm not really surprised because I haven't seen a lot of high-trust HIPAA certification conversation coming from the Google. Uh, but, you know, they did have the Mayo Clinic that they announced, and that was a pretty big deal uh, recently. And they did mention some HIPAA compatibility things they had there. So we'll be interested to see if uh, this, you know, changes in the future. I think it's just interesting that they decided to announce it so loudly. Yeah, that's a little interesting, too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly why that was the case unless, you know, that was maybe a bit of a hit job by Azure or AWS saying, hey, if you're not going to go with Google, you should, uh, you know, leak that to CNBC. Yeah, <laughs> Get an article okay. out of it. I don't know. It's a little weird. Perhaps the Mayo Clinic going with GCP is, is more about their clinical research side of the business rather than, I mean, obviously they, they have a, uh, hospitals and, and patient care, but they also do a lot of research. And I think um, machine learning on the, uh, the GCP cloud for them may be the best choice for the research side of the business, but maybe not for the, uh, the patient care side. Yeah, could be. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. 
Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities or custom integrations, and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces BindPlane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. BindPlane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bloomadora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Bloomadora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plain. Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. Well, on to uh, container security, a topic near and dear to uh, Google's heart. Uh, if you're serious about security and Kubernetes, the CIS Kubernetes benchmark uh, will help you a ton. The new 1.5 version of the K8 benchmark uh, was released recently to cover uh, up to Kubernetes 1.15. Uh, and these uh, are recommend. Oh, so then uh, Google also has released a child to the CISK Kubernetes benchmark that is a child uh, of the upstream version that will allow you to provide uh, GKE hardening guidelines to also help meet those CIS guidelines. So if you're using Kubernetes on any platform, you can take a look at the open source uh, version of the CIS. And if you're using GKE, there's uh, specific guidelines and recommendations to you to make your system perfect. And those will be found in the security health analytics dashboard of Google Cloud. I'm going to be really nitpicky now, and I'm going to say, wouldn't it be way more sensible to have the version of the benchmark doc match the version <laughs> of Kubernetes? <laughs> you would think so. I mean, I'd, it'd be nice if they matched, because then it'd be really easy to know which version you're dealing with. Exactly. <laughs> that is pretty yeah. But beyond that, that's really good. I, I think um, more and more like the, the cloud providers need to start telling their customers how to use the tools that they've built uh, properly. Because there's so much guesswork happens, and people try and reinvent, more people reinvent the same uh, the same things over and over again. And uh, documentation like this will will definitely save time and be an enabler. Uh, more importantly, I think is to tell the auditors what they should be looking for, so that it makes it easy for auditors to look notes, built the best practice, and give it a pass. Yeah, we mentioned that before, and uh, as uh, it's. Um, I love the idea of telling the auditor what they should be looking for. <laughs> don't, they don't, don't, know, look over, right? don't look over here. They don't, don't look know. over here. <laughs> they really, yeah, they really don't know. They, it's all new to them. I mean, I've had to explain basic CI/CD practices that have been industry standards for you know ten, fifteen years now to uh, you know to auditors. They just don't understand it. They are used to a very old legacy way of doing software development. Actually, the the security health analytics dashboard that is in GCP is is really impressive. Um, you know, we're working on a small project around GCP and potentially looking at doing some multi-cloud stuff with GCP at the day job. And um, the person who's driving that effort every day, he sends out a snapshot of the security health analytics dashboard of how they've resolved these open security items as they're trying to get you know the security team on board. And, and the kind of it's nice for the marketing of that. Like, hey, you see, each week, each day we're reducing. And you know we had something similar for AWS when we started, but we had to buy it from you know companies like Evid and IO um, to get that same capability. That's it's really nice. That's just kind of built into Google. I, I'm impressed with some of those technologies that uh, are just there now that I had to build or or imp- implement you know four or five years ago on AWS to get the same capability. It's nice to be able to turn some of those things off, though. You know, like oh no, the the sky's falling, the sky's falling. This port's open to the public. Well, yeah, it's meant to be. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's how I feel about the uh, public cloud uh, or the public S3 bucket warning right now. It's, you know, they've got, they made it really difficult to do that now. Uh, and, but like, I really want this one to be public because it's a website and it, you know, it takes a lot more clicks, a lot more effort now to make that, which is good. And also kind of like, well, if I know what I'm doing, then let me, let me bypass some of this. It's, this, uh, yeah, it's policing. way easier to do from the CLI. You don't have to, you know, type in, yes, I really do want to make this bucket public, please. And yes. then, you know, <laughs> sc- sc- scan the passports of all eight great grandparents and uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's a little excessive. <laughs> Uh, if you are working on uh, Anthos, uh, Google has a new masterclass in hybrid cloud architecture and management for you. The new architecting hybrid cloud infrastructure with Anthos teaches you how to modernize, observe, secure, and manage your applications using Istio-powered service mesh and Kubernetes, whether you're on-premises, on Google Cloud, or distributed across both, or even in a competitive cloud. Uh, the course consists of a mix of lectures and hands-on labs. Uh, you learn about compute, networking, service mesh, config management, and their underlying control plane, so you can understand the full scope of the platform capabilities. Uh, the course is delivered in three parts, the first being the hybrid cloud infrastructure foundations with Anthos, the next is the hybrid cloud service mesh, and then the last is the hybrid cloud multi-cluster with Anthos. Um, so if you are looking at Anthos, looking at hybrid cloud, and you are looking for a class on this, this is now available to you. Uh, from Google, either in, on per, uh, in person or on uh, self-paced online through Quick Labs. Just don't forget not to spin up the Anthos uh, service unless uh, you want to spend 10k a month. A minimum. <laughs> minimum for for a year. Uh, that's that's <laughs> quite a pricey. Uh, I mean, I, surely they must have simulators and things like that if they're going to offer training. Yeah, I assume well, through Quick Labs and those type yeah. of things. It's all it's all virtualized and available to you through the lab. Uh, but yeah, if after that you're like, oh, I'm going to turn that on, mm-hmm. uh, just know you made a $120,000 commitment and spend. Yeah. <laughs> so just be be aware before you go click in the GUI or in the CLI command and uh, make that mistake. And then uh, Google Cloud on the other side of uh, the bad news from Epic uh, has announced positive news and that they have uh, grown uh, the travel industry presence with the Sabre and Lufanza deals. Uh, so they apparently have signed a 10-year agreement with Sabre Corp. Uh, we'll see Google become the preferred cloud provider. Uh, Sabre operates a payment platform that processes more than $260 billion in travel-related purchases annually for companies such as airlines and hotel chains, uh, and it posted revenues of $3.78 billion for its most recent fiscal year. So that's a very large customer that is very embedded and very ingrained in the world of travel. Uh, if you've ever watched your flight attendant uh, at the gate, you know you need to move your seat or change your flight, and she's frantically typing away at your keyboard, most likely she is in a Sabre system uh, doing that work for you uh, on the fly. Uh, they have a quote here from the Chief Executive Officer of Sabre, Sean Menke. Uh, As our preferred cloud provider and broader strategic partner, Google Cloud will help to accelerate our digital transformation and ability to create new marketplace and critical products and systems focused on our customer needs for decades to come. And then the other part of this announcement was Lufthansa, uh, which is a German's, uh, Germany's flag carrier for airlines and the largest aviation group globally with close to $40 billion in revenues of 2018, has also uh, intends to build an AI-powered flight optimization platform on the Google Cloud that will analyze factors such as departure dates and plane maintenance schedules to identify ways of cutting wait times for flyers. Uh, so using that AI ML experience from Google to uh, help them in a big way. Now, this is a really great announcement. Um, I do wonder how much of this Sabre uh, announcement is tied to the fact that Google owns the largest uh, plane tracking system in the world <laughs> that Sabre has to integrate with. <laughs> and uh, if by going with their cloud, there are some strategic synergies that may be optimized in that scenario. But uh, for overall, I think it's a, a nice win for both uh, Google and Lufthansa and Sabre. Pro, only preferred provider, though. Not, not, not sole provider. That's that's true. Yeah. It does not say sole. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ten, years, t- 10 years as a preferred provider, that's, that's pretty decent. It must be worth something. But, well, but how much? You know, could it would have been easy to say how much. 
Instead, they quote the size of the business. Yeah, I think the, the value the is in the marketing, the not in the revenue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's interesting because uh, you know Google Google bought ITEA for seven hundred million uh, back in twenty ten, and now that's now turned into a very large Saber deal <laughs> for a very large chunk of money to run Saber on Google Cloud. So, well, well I mean, done. we don't know that. I mean, we don't know that, but I'm. Purely speculating that there might be some synergies there. <laughs> oh no, I just meant we don't know how if it is going to be significant spent. That's true. We don't. Well, good. Uh, well, happy to see Google had at least one win this week after that brutal beating it took from Epic, uh, which was pretty epic in its own way. But uh, let's move on to lightning round, Peter. AWS Security Hub releases the ability to disable specific compliance controls. Didn't you just mention this, Jonathan? I did. Like you, it's like you read the show notes. <laughs> There's there obviously a, a, a leak. <laughs> AWS Security Hub also releases integrations with four new partners. None of the partners that I want to work with, so I appreciate none of this. Other than Slack. Slack. I, well, I guess Slack is one of those yeah, four. Slack. four. Uh, maybe yeah. nothing says security than uh, more, more than by posting your, your uh, events to Slack, I suppose. Yeah. Amazon Aurora supports the read committed isolation level on read replicas. I'm glad to know about this now because I've committed it to memory. Ooh. Oh, he's, he's trying to game the system, Pacer. <laughs> <laughs> he knows I like dumb puns. That sounds like Chinese food of some kind. <laughs> AWS Elastic Beanstalk command line interface, EBCLI, is now open source. Okay, you went with a public GitHub roadmap. You put this on the slide. We talked about it last week, and then you literally just moved it to the right and released it. Come on, like you know, don't make your don't make your public roadmap look better than it actually is. <laughs> you were, it was imminent to rigged. ship. That was rigged. <laughs> That's sandbagging at the best. Yeah, it is sandbagging. AWS Glue adds new transforms, purge, transition, and merge for Apache Spark applications to work with datasets in Amazon S3. That is super glue. Ooh. Ooh, nice. AWS Client VPN now supports port configuration. Who wants this feature? And what what, what purpose? It's only what and like when you first read this, you're like, well, maybe this is a security through obscurity play. Like you're like, yeah, you know, you know, you don't want to use four four three, you want to use another port that's more difficult. It only supports one other port, which is one one nine four. What what's the point? Open VPN eleven ninety four was the default port for open VPN, and I think yeah. they've, they've, did they add eleven ninety four or did they add four four three? They added 11.94. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the default port for, for, for every OpenVPN client out of the box. It's still weird to me either way that you, know, you're, you announce now supports port configuration when really you only support one port additional. I kind of wonder. I mean, yeah, they added 11.94, which is the default anyway. But I, I guess if, if you've got some outbound proxy which forces that traffic through the proxy, then you definitely need to use it from port because it's just not going to work. I bet somebody yep. asked for it. AWS Systems Manager now provides flexible reboot options for patching. Hopefully it uh, supports those maintenance window restrictions and blackouts <laughs> that they announced three weeks ago. Query volume metrics now available for Amazon Route 53 resolver endpoints. Should have been a day one feature. That's all I can say. AWS Code Pipeline enables stopping pipeline ex executions. Oh, thank God. I can now finally stop my terrible code builds because I, I just thought, oh, I'll just push it to the repo. No big deal. And then kicked off a tire pipeline that I can't stop <laughs> for my 24-hour build. Great. It's like watching a very <laughs> slow train wreck just unfold in front of you. 
<laughs> like, I know it's going to fail at step 345 out of thousands of steps <laughs> that I have to wait for. No. <laughs> There's a new Azure blueprint for CIS benchmark. Woo. Yeah. See, it's tough to get excited about CIS. I mean, it's it's a good standard. I like CIS, but yeah, it's hard to hard to get. Maybe we should just kill all CIS stories from now on, unless it's interesting. And I'm committed to giving the winner to committed. Nice. Yes. I, so again, I listened to episode 55 this morning on the way to the office, and I heard the wordplay thing, and I was like, yes, I must hit the wordplay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I especially like how you capitalized read committed in the, uh, in, in the show notes here so that Peter would emphasize that just to bring your point home. I mean, like if you click the link, yeah, it's, I will it's tell it's you that link, Amazon yeah. marketing gave us that emphasis, not me. Yeah. Yes. So, That's, uh, so it's, it's like no cheat. That was not cheating. That was fair and square. Mm-hmm. That's like New York Times style guide type stuff. If it's a sequel, it must be capitalized. Well, thank you for the point. I'm now only halfway behind Jonathan. <laughs> so, uh, still, uh, still ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. So uh, last week, uh, Peter put a call to action at this part of the show because I I had a bad transition last time and said, uh, you know, what are you guys uh, looking forward to in the next week or so? And we didn't have answers. And Peter said, that's on you. And that so I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it back out to you again. What's going on, guys? What Looking forward to anything in the next week? I'm going on a little trip. I might be able to have an opportunity to check out that Osaka uh, data center. I'll be kind of close in Okinawa. Nice. Um, if you go on uh, WikiLeaks, you can get the address, so you can go check it out. There you go. Uh, I'm actually going to be a single dad uh, between now and next week, because uh, my wife is escaping on a BFF uh, girls trip. And so uh, she is leaving me with my children, and I'll be working from home. So by the time we record next week, I will be completely frazzled. <laughs> uh, so that'll be enjoyable for all of you uh, as we record sometime next week. Uh, and I know, Peter, you'll be out, so we will have uh, another amazing guest uh, to join us here on the show. Uh, which yeah, so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to surviving the next five days uh, without killing my children or having them kill me. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> how, about, how about you, Jonathan? What are you looking forward to? Well, the office is going to be pretty nice without you uh, staring at me out your window, I guess. <laughs> Oh, there you go. You should talk. You should talk to your boss about your new seating location if you don't want to be stared at. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be doing musical chairs in the office. So again, I, I again. The number of times I moved moved desks uh, in this this company is just it's just yeah. I'm up to about nine or ten moves now. We like to keep you on your toes. That's how we do it. I mean, at least you don't have like piles and piles of junk like one of our coworkers does on his desk. So there you go. Yeah, I, I always figure that I, I keep an empty cardboard box under the desk and minimal things so that if if I get walked out, I don't have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Very positive outlook on uh, unemployment. That's, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's not. It's not like you walked out. Well, I believe uh, Jonathan and I have a maintenance window to gr- rush off to uh, to go resize the database. So we're going to do that fun. Uh, Peter, have a great vacation. We'll see you on the other side uh, of that, and we'll look forward to hearing all about the amazing Japanese whiskey you're going to drink. Oh, it's going to be good. I bet it will be. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the CloudPod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag thecloudpod. Mm-hmm.